Open your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians 11. Those of you that are here on a regular basis uh, are probably wondering why we haven't had the Lord's Supper yet, because we usually have it by now. You'll understand as I preach my message, because the message has to do with the Lord's Supper. I got a smartphone back in August. might be smarter than me, I'm not sure. But I can plug it into my computer, and there's a whole series of information that will synchronize with the phone. If you're familiar with uh, Microsoft, I have the Outlook program, all the names and addresses, and the, the email, and a whole bunch of other things all integrate together. So wherever I am, I can look up your address, and now I can plug it into the GPS, and I can find, uh, find things just like that. So that's pretty slick. Um, to make this phone thing really work easily with my computer in the office, I, I, I got a little thing called a cradle. It's a thing that the phone sits in, and it's wired up to the computer, and every time you plug it in, it automatically synchronizes. A little program in the computer that goes out and finds the latest information from here or from there and puts it all together, and, and everybody is happy. And uh, So I go online to find the little cradle for the phone, and it looks like the actual phone maker doesn't make one, but there's some other people that do. So I order one, and it comes, and the little plug isn't even the same size plug. It won't work at all. So I send that one back. And uh, so then I go online, get my courage up, and I order another one. And it comes, and sure enough, it's got a cable, and it's got the right plug, and I hook it on, and the computer says, unknown device. This device is broken. Replace it. Oh, really? Maybe that's because the brand name is Sidu, and it's made in China. I don't know. But it does not work. It is an off-brand. It's a generic, not made by the manufacturer. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians 11 today, and I want to challenge you with this thought. That when you come to the Lord's table, you need to come with God's brand of righteousness, not an off-brand. We like to create our own ideas about righteousness, sometimes in the big strokes, sometimes in the small strokes, but God says, don't do it. Come with my righteousness. Follow with me, please, as we read from 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, verse 24, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, Take, eat, for this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, therefore, because of what's going on here, whoever eats of this bread or drinks of this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and then let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. 
For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. The Apostle Paul received directly from Christ the teaching about the Lord's Supper. And he largely, in the first part of this paragraph, uh, or first part, verses 23 through 26, if you have a red letter Bible like I do, which shows the words of Christ wherever they occur, it shows them in red, you can see that part of this is a direct quote from Jesus Christ himself. Christ said these truths on the night in which he was betrayed. He gave the truth to, to Paul, and he gave Paul more truth beyond that, particularly verses 27 and following that we just read. What we understand about the nature of this, uh, of this worship ritual that we're going to have is this. Christ's desire is very simply remembrance. There are all kinds of meanings that have been attached to this juice and this bread by various churches, but it's a very simple meaning that Christ intended, and what he intended was for you and I to come together on a regular basis and remember him to remember him. That is the simplest definition of worship that I can think of. Worship is not something that happens when we sing. Worship is something that happens when I think about God and recognize who he is and who I am and what he has done for me and in me, and I remember that and I actively think on it. Uh, we have a cross here because it, it gives a bit of a focal point to remember Jesus died on something like that. He died for me. I need to remember that all the time. I don't need to think of him on the cross, but I need to remember he paid a very steep penalty for me. I need to actively remember that's what Christ wants. It says here, look at this in verse 23, on the night in which he was betrayed. On that night, he instituted this supper. On that night, he said, I want you to remember me. I want you to remember the incredible physical suffering I will go through. I want you to remember my shed blood. I want you to remember that I died to save you. They didn't understand that he was going to go out of that room and into the events that would become his death within hours. They didn't understand that. And so he said, look, guys, I want you to remember me. And here's one of the ways I want you to do it. It's not the only way, but I want you to eat some bread, and I want you to think about my body and the terrible physical punishment that I went through. And I want you to drink the juice and think about my blood that was shed. The shedding of blood obviously is not just about bleeding it's about dying and remember his death that paid for our sins one of the last things that's always done and it will be done tomorrow as it was done several times last in the last few months at a memorial service for a police officer who dies in the line of duty is the last radio call it's one of those moments that makes me choke up when i hear it when i think about it it's not an actual call, of course. Uh, that would be a little too hard technically to pull off. 
but they make the call over the radio and they record it coming out of a radio. Then they play it at the memorial service. And it always follows a pattern. And the pattern involves the, uh, the call sign of the officer. My call sign is 9 Adam 614. And so they would say 9 Adam 614. They repeat that. And then they say gone, but not forgotten. Gone, but not forgotten. That's what this is about. Do you remember Christ? Do you think of him? Do you honor him? He is gone from us physically. He's not gone spiritually. But he is not to be forgotten. He has saved our eternal soul. That bears some active remembering. That's why we do this every month. Some churches do it every week. It's okay, you can do it as often as you like, but as often as you do it, Christ says, remember me, think about me. Now in this remembering, he gives us a specific instruction. Look at verse 27. He says, now listen, there is a right way to do this and a wrong way. Therefore, because this is about remembering Christ, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. So let a man examine himself, and then let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And so we come to uh, this statement. What is Christ's demand here? Well, the demand is for righteousness. And so I want to think about it in in two lights. First of all, what makes us worthy to come into God's presence at all? And then what makes us worthy to receive the Lord's Supper? Well, Hebrews 19 tells us what makes us worthy to come into God's presence. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the Holy of Holies, the the, the very presence of God, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is through his flesh, When we ask the question, why am I worthy to come right up to God the Father and pray to him or offer a song of praise to him or have this and say, thank you for my salvation? Why can I come right up into his presence? It is because the blood of Christ has washed my sin away and I am now a righteous person able to come into the presence of a righteous God. Without that, I'm not worthy to come. God doesn't sit up in heaven and call sinners to come and do something for him. He calls them to believe in Christ, and the blood of Christ then takes away our sin. Ephesians 3 puts it this way, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Some people struggle coming into the presence of God because they never feel worthy because they've done some bad things in their life. And I've got good news for you today. The blood of Christ takes away the sin of the world, including yours. And if you have believed in Christ, you are worthy to come into the presence of God. It's a wonderful blessing that he gives to us. But our our worthiness goes on from there. We have to consider not only our righteousness as a believer, but then our righteousness 
as we walk day to day, what makes us worthy to receive the Lord's Supper? If we have believed in Christ, and if his blood has removed our sin, which it does when we believe, now, how do I as a believer become worthy to come into the Lord's presence for his supper? Our worthiness to participate in this ritual is a continuation of our worthiness to come into God's presence. Our faith takes away our sin, and our continual righteousness keeps us fit. Let's go back to this passage. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us then draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The command to us in the Lord's Supper and in all of our life is to come to God with a true heart. The root meaning of this word true here is unconcealed, not hidden. In 2 Timothy 2.8, there's an instruction that, that says, I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands. Now, does that mean that when we pray, we're always supposed to stand up and go like this? Or go like this? No, the emphasis is on holy. You see, the idea of, the idea of concealment would be to go like this. I'm hiding something. God says, I want you to pray like this. And it's not a physical posture. It's a spiritual posture. So we come to God with a true heart, an unconcealed heart. The question we could ask would be this. When you come into God's presence, whether it's to pray or to sing a song of praise, to thank him for something he's done or to receive the Lord's Supper, can you come straight up, full on, nothing hidden? No secrets. That's what makes us worthy to come to this ritual. A lot of discussion going on right now in our country and in the world about using x-ray scanners for people when they go to fly on an airplane. You know, you stand in the thing and you go like this, and if, if you've been watching TV at all, you see the image, and the image shows the outline of your body, and nothing can be hidden. This fellow who got on the plane put his bomb in a place where even if they searched him, they wouldn't have reached there. And that's how he snuck it onto the plane. But if he'd have been x-ray scanned, they'd have saw something that didn't belong. And he'd have been caught. Oh, that's an invasion of privacy. Here's a question I want to ask. If we had a little soul x-ray scanner, and we said, we'd like you to walk through before you receive the Lord's Supper. Would we see something extra? What was that right there? If we had one, here's the kinds of things I think it would turn up. First of all, it would turn up things that we think are insignificant. You know, a little white lie. You know why little white lies are okay? Because we actually do them to be kind to people. Right? People love to be lied to, don't they? How does that thinking go? I'm not sure. But we somehow have told ourselves that there are little lies, and then there's great big whopper lies. Now, those, we, those are bad. But these little ones, they're not too bad. We use words 
to show how little our sin are. We call it fudging on a test. We call it naughty behavior. I've seen some pictures and heard some reports about the stuff that they take off of people going onto airplanes, just going through a metal detector. I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands of knives. Do you really think you were going to sneak through the metal detector and have a knife, even though it's a little one, and they're going to say, oh, it's just a little knife, that's okay. Do you really think that? I don't want you getting on the plane with a little knife. That's the way we think about sin sometimes. Well, this sin's just a little one. Just a little baby sin. Look what God says about his word. The word of God is living and powerful, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Does it seem like God would make his word that powerful and that specific if he didn't want us to use it in the same way? To get down in there on the thoughts and the intents of the heart and say, you know what, that thing right there, that's wrong. Yeah, it's little, but it's wrong. The second kind of thing that we would find with our soul scanner is things that we think God got wrong. You know, sometimes God just does not understand your situation. You know, if God knew what a tyrant my husband is, he he wouldn't care about this. In fact, God does know. That's why it's okay for me to do this other thing that's wrong. Or if God knew my wife, man, she nags. Oh, man. So it's okay for me to go over here. Or, you know, if God knew how hard this class is I am taking and how important it was for me to pass, then he wouldn't care that I had to fudge on that test just a little bit. God never gets it wrong. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, specifically here, who suppress the truth. We know what God says, and yet sometimes we want to suppress that truth because we don't really want to deal with it. There's a third category of things that that our soul scanner might turn up. Things that we think are private. Things that we think are private. If no one sees it, it's my private world. No one gets hurt by this little sin. It's just my little thing. Don't you worry about it. And yet look what Psalm 139 says about God. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend up into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness will fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you. But the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. There's no such thing as a private sin. Um, In fact, look at 1 Corinthians 11. There's an allusion to this private sin thing here in verse 31. If we would judge ourselves, 
we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Years ago, I I read a statement by John MacArthur. He said, you can either confess your sin to God or he'll confess it for you to the world. Boy, I don't want that. I want to confess my sin to God. I want to get it right with God. I don't want to pretend that my sin is a private matter. There's a fourth category of things that we like to conceal, and it's things that are fun. I know God says this or that is wrong, but it's just so fun. It can't be wrong when it feels so right. Great line out of a song. God wouldn't... Here's one thing that people say. God wouldn't give us the ability to enjoy this pleasure and then declare that it's wrong, would he? That would be cruel. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. I'd like to challenge you to think about something here. Many sins are only sins because of timing. Parents, this is especially important for you to teach to your children. For instance, it's not wrong to have some nice belonging, but if you're in such a hurry to get it that you have to steal it, then it's wrong. Even though it might be a fine thing to have at some point in your life. It's not wrong for a husband and wife to have sexual relations, but if you're in such a hurry to have sex that you can't wait to get married, then it's a sin. There are many good things that God has created for us, and in his time he may give them to us, or he may not. But we have to be patient, and a great much sin is created because we are in a hurry to get the pleasure that we think we have to have for our life. In contrast to this quick pleasure, I love this verse. The blessing of the Lord makes one rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. One One of the times when this memory just stood out in my mind, I thought of this verse when I walked my wife down the aisle to, to take her seat before my son's wedding, the first of our kids to get married, and I'm walking her down, and I thought, man, this has been 21 years of work to get him to this point righteously. But you know what? The blessing of the Lord makes one rich, and there's no sorrow, no problem here, no, no well, but no, it's just a wonderful blessing. But it won't come if we're in such a hurry to grab a certain pleasure that we think we can't live without. We've got to say no, even though things are fun sometimes. Here's another category of things that we like to keep hidden. Things that are expensive. And I'm not talking about dollars uh, as in buying something. More so this, if I do what is right... If I confess this sin and walk on the path of righteousness in this area, it's going to cost me big time. I have a friend of a friend, lives far away from here, who had a girlfriend 
This fellow claims to be a Christian, had a girlfriend, then, then a fiancé, then a baby. Well, it's not the end of the world. But they're not going to get married because if they do, she's going to lose her medical coupons. See, marriage will cost them something. So those dollars are more important than that righteousness. I, I've seen it in all ages. There are costs involved to walking with the Lord. At least potential cost. You see, because when we say, I can't afford to live righteously, you know what we're really saying? I don't think God can provide in this situation. I think God's just not quite that big. And you know what the result is? We don't get to see God doing miracles. When we throw ourselves on the mercy of God and say, oh God, I, I, there's nothing I can do about this. Here, I'm going to walk righteously with you. Please provide. You know, God somehow comes through for those folks. But when we feel constrained to take matters into our own hands, say, God, now listen, you've got to understand this is just going to be too expensive. I just can't confess this sin. I can't walk righteously. There's all kinds of temptations that go with this. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What will a man give in exchange for his own soul? There is no, the truth is there is no sin that, that is going to bring more value to your life than righteousness. Uh, this, the last category I believe that I have here, yes, is things that we can't live without. Do you remember the rich man who came to Jesus seeking salvation? Jesus, looking at him, said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word, and he went away sorrowful, for he was a rich man. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom. And the disciples were astonished at his word, but Jesus clarified, and he said, children, how hard is it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. If there's something in your life that you think you can't live without, and so you don't confess it, then that's your brand of holiness, not God's brand. I knew a woman, I knew a woman years ago who was troubled, came to try to find some help for depression and anxiety and things like that. And as we talked, it became clear she had a, she had a, a, she claimed to be a Christian. She had a relationship with an older man that was sexual. And I said, look, you've got to let this go. She didn't even like the guy. She didn't want to have a long-term relationship with him. But you know what she said? I get lonely. And he's better than Nothing. I thought, really? Really, God can't meet that need in your heart? She was like the rich guy. She walked away sorrowful because she would not let go of that thing she had to have. Don't be deceived. God isn't mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he reap. For he who sows to his flesh 
will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will reap everlasting life. There is nothing that should come between you and God because you think you can't live without it. Well, let's think about one more thing today. What is Christ's delight? He demands righteousness. What kind of worship pleases God? Look at this verse. Some of you are familiar with it. The true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. Here's what I want to challenge you with this thought. Worship isn't a physical action alone. I understand that every act of righteousness we do, we do with our body. If I'm going to tell the truth, it is a physical act as well as a mental act. I understand that. If I am going to build the church building, it's a physical act as well as a spiritual act. But sometimes people think they can do the physical act without the spiritual because there's bread there to eat. And so they eat the bread and somehow they think, God, I'm eating the bread today and God's going to look down from heaven and go, oh, good job. And it's not true. It is not a physical act that pleases God. It is the physical coupled with the spiritual. We can come to church and sing songs. We can say prayers. We can read scripture. We can have this ritual of the Lord's Supper. Physical actions are the vehicle for genuine heart worship. But God is not worshipped by going through the motions. He's worshipped by our heart, reaching out and saying, thank you for saving me. In particular today, Jesus, thank you for suffering on the cross. Thank you for shedding your blood. I've really been enjoying the GPS unit that my wife got me for Christmas. She was so thoughtful, discovered what I wanted so carefully. There's a little warning sign that comes on every time it turns on that says, don't use this while you're driving. This is dangerous. Do you accept this? And I go, yes, I accept this. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Another little screen came up and said, would you like to turn off the warning? Yes, I'd like to turn off the warning. <laughs> Man, I love watching that thing. I love going down the streets and seeing the names of the streets. Oh. And you know what? It's right most of the time. It tells me the speed limit, and it tells me my speed. And so I've been watching those speed limit signs to see. And most of the time, it's right. I've even been watching the names of the streets to see if it gets those right. And most of the time, it gets them right. And that's the way we like to come to God. Well, you know, God, I'm mostly righteous. And God says, won't do. You need to be right with me. You need to let go of your sin. Whatever it is, whatever kind it is, let it go. Confess it. Come to me with a clean heart, with, a, with an unconcealed heart. And tell me you love me. And tell me thank you for what I've done in your life. And that will be worthy worship. Let's pray together. Father, help us to be worthy worshipers. We know that you've made us worthy by taking away our sin. If there's anybody here who's never believed in Christ and had their sin removed, help them to believe in the Savior even now. For those of us who have believed, may we come with unconcealed hearts. May there be nothing that we're holding back. I pray in Christ's name, amen.